It's another edition of the Talking Mets Podcast here on this Monday, April the 17th. Of course, you can check out the show all the time at MetsMarizedOnline.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you can check out the show on uh, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. Hope everybody's doing well. Day off here on a Monday, and uh, because of the Easter and Passover holiday, I decided to push the show this week to the off day, and pretty uh, pretty interesting show I have for you today. Rich Catino, you guys have heard him on the show before, but we're not going to talk Mets today with Rich Catino. He just came out with a book that I had a chance to take a look at over the uh, over the weekend called Press Box Revolution, and Rich really outlines in this book, I don't want to say just a blueprint of of where if you're looking to be in media, where you need to go and what you need to look for, but a little bit of the history of uh, media in this town, some of the experiences covering the various teams, top athletes he's covered, not on performance on the field, but in terms of interacting with, tons of uh, nuggets in here that I got to tell you would really an easy read, a good read. When I say an easy read, not a not necessarily a, a you know simplistic read, but really you could even take a chapter and it could stand alone. So you could jump around if you want and uh, and read different uh, different topics without really having to go in, in in order if that's what you want to do. But I mean, Rich goes from his early days uh, when really before what you everyone knows uh, sports talk radio to be. All the way to now with social media and fantasy and sabermetrics and all sorts of other advanced statistics uh, that have really infiltrated into the uh, the media landscape. So we'll talk a little bit about the book uh, and really about media. So th- there's going to be – you know, normally we have a Mets component, and I'll get to the Mets in a minute here during my monologue. But we're going to take a different you know, mindset here and really just talk more about media, media in New York and – and, and talk about Rich's book. And, and Rich has been great to me here, uh, you know, coming on the show, talking Mets, and I've been wanting to. And, and I think if you've been listening for the last six months and Rich has been on, he's been teasing it. I've been wanting to kind of get him and sit down and talk a little bit about this particular book, the topic. So Press Box Revolution, I had a chance to download it on Kindle. I know it's coming out on hardcover. Uh, how sports reporting has changed over the past 30 years. It's really a, a, an interesting read. So Rich will be on in just a couple of minutes. As far as the Mets just came off a uh, road trip, day off before a homestand uh, with the Phillies and the Nationals coming to town this week. Four and three, homestand, uh, excuse me, road trip. Not a bad road trip. Very disappointing end to the road trip. And I'm going to succinctly put, without getting into a lot here, where the Mets are at and where the, the, the concern is. And I think so far what you've seen of this team is pretty much what you would expect. Really good starting pitching, very encouraging outing from Zach Wheeler. I think Robert Gazelman will join the party and will we'll, we'll, we'll get to where he needs to be. I don't think he's going to be uh, as bad as he's been. He's off to a, t- a rough start there, and it seems like they, they know kind of where mechanically – the issues are, at least if that's what you're you're believing, what Dan Warpton is saying in some of the reports. So really good starting pitching. When Familia returns, I think it will make the bullpen stronger. The bullpen was responsible for a majority of the disappointment in the latter half of the trip. But 
They are short a very important arm. There was some uh, you know, taxing of the bullpen with that 16-inning game. The real issue, it goes back to what I said, is that and I understand with the surgery and all that stuff, you need these starters to, to start to get to seven innings. Because if they're going to do five, five and change six, you're going to have a very overtaxed bullpen. And I'm not talking about Wheeler. I'm talking about the other four guys. Because Zellman has to pitch better, and then the three big three, when at some point this year, you really have to push them to be at about 110 to 115, maybe 120 pitches, if the performance is there. Uh, it just that's to me, there's no reason. 100 pitches is just not enough. You're going to have an overtaxed bullpen at that. So, but it's too early to complain about that. But that's something to look for. Offensively, this this is who they are. They can bludgeon teams. I think they're a bit of a bully offense. Uh, they showed some encouraging signs of Darno. It, it, you know, can lengthen that lineup a little bit and not be an automatic out. They really don't have any automatic outs per se, but you have streaky guys, and that's where the automatic outs start. You know, they're going to have to figure out this Conforto-Granderson thing. So it's going to be on to Terry to say, you know, I need to get Conforto in two, three times a week, and that's probably going to be at the expense of Granderson. Uh, you know, Reyes obviously is somebody that we have to keep an eye on and see, you know, I don't think Reyes is done. But certainly, he hasn't contributed at the top of the lineup. So they've been a little feast or famine, as I predicted. And I don't think – I mean, I'm less concerned about the offense in the sense that I, I, I see some signs. Whereas last year, when you had guys like Loney in and, and you were trying to plug in Eric Campbell uh, and you had the injuries to Walker and Darno wasn't hitting – I mean, there was a lot of dead spots. I mean, you probably only had three, four really – solid hitters in the lineup that were really clicking at that point. And, 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 and once you get past that part of the lineup, you had to wait two innings, three innings, two and a half innings. I don't think that'll be the case here. But it is going to be a feast or famine offense, and I think it's going to be times where it's going to be a bully offense. But they put up a crooked number. And, and the starting pitching does what it needs to do in the bullpen. And is managed prop, and that's where I'll go right now. Manage properly and and healthy, and and everyone's slotted in where they need to be when Familia comes back. They should be right there. Are they a hundred win team? No. Uh, you know, right now they're on pace for eighty seven wins. I love how every day the pace changes because it's so early in the season. One day the Mets are on pace for one hundred eight wins, the next day they're on pace for eighty five. It's just funny how it works this early in the season. But succinctly, where this team's issue is. And I'm not going to go on 45 minutes about this. And I've said this on Twitter that you guys have gotten on my case. I've said this on the show. There are three things, in my opinion, that a baseball manager needs to do. This has nothing to do with the NFL. has nothing to do with the NBA. But there are concepts in here that any coach, manager in this town needs to do. You need to manage the clubhouse, number one. And Terry Collins does that. You need to manage the media. And in, in some cases in this day and age, it's getting to the point where the media, uh, you co-opt them a little bit so that it doesn't become what you see what's going on with the Knicks with bad reporting. Because right now you've got a lot of bad reporting over there uh, on the Knicks side, a lot of inaccurate reporting over on the Knicks side. So you don't, you don't have that here at all. And then you got to – in baseball, you have to manage a bullpen. And the third component, we are now on year seven of Terry Collins, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, year seven. 
and he doesn't get it. And what you saw Saturday night with Salas coming in, and obviously Salas has been pitching well, but he's been overused. The fact that knowing that Yelich was in the middle of all this, and that Blevins wasn't even warmed up for Yelich, is exactly the issue you have with this team. Terry Collins is great at painting by numbers. And you can, if you have really, really strong relievers, get to the point where you can do that. When it's Reed and Familia, you have your eighth and your ninth inning set. You go there, and if you lose, you lost. There's nothing there. Maybe you throw in against a really, really tough lefty. Maybe you throw in Blevins, but not in the eighth or ninth with Reed and Familia. Obviously not the ninth, but in the eighth. The seventh inning or the sixth innings with is the mixing and matching. You soar to ad nauseum when it was September and he had all those resources. But typically, Salas, Blevins, depending on the hitter, Blevins is the guy that you brought back, you paid all that money to get big left-handed hitters out. And that's what Yelich was. And the fact that he wasn't in, and then he came in not only after Yelich tied the game with a home run, but then you're not going to bring Blevins in for Stanton. But then that's where you kind of knew Salas was, was, was not in good good place. You have to question the pitch calling. You throw fastball down the middle. I think it was a fastball down the middle. I have to go back and look at the replay. Where maybe you say, hey, let's pitch a little more carefully to this guy. And then you bring Blevins in. Well, if Blevins was unavailable because you wanted to arrest him, you didn't accomplish that. So he should have been up anyway. And there's the excuse of, well, what if he gave up a hit to Yelich? That's not, that's, his job is to get him out. And if he gives him a hit to Yelich, you address it with maybe you pitch around Stanton. And by the way, if you pitch around Stanton, you know, he can get righties out. I mean, Stanton's not the guy I'd want Blevins up against. But he could get righties out. There's ways around that. It's not like the bases would have been loaded. And even so, you go with your lefty. You go with the guy to get you out. You don't his planning ahead is planning for doom. And the issue you have here is you have a manager that cannot pivot in-game. And that's a big problem. It's a big problem in a postseason series. It's going to be a big problem throughout the season. And this guy, every year, costs this team between five and eight games, sometimes more, with bad in-game management. And all of it, most of it, has to do with managing the bullpen. And on top of it, a lot of it is because sometimes his mind doesn't move as fast as the game. If somebody's unavailable and if Blevins was unavailable and Blevins never came in the game on Saturday, this would not have been an issue. But this, his inability to pivot, his inability to manage his bullpen cost this team what would have been a nice 5-2 and two road trip and I think a better feeling coming home to what became a real sour weekend, an okay road trip, and now you come home, you take the day off, and now you try to get back on the horse and try to get off a three-game losing streak. Losing all three games with your three best pitchers. Now you're on the back end of the rotation, which is still pretty good. But you get where I'm going. So all I'm saying about this team is this. You guys could sit here and complain about the offense and Conforto and all that other stuff. And maybe you're concerned that they didn't bring back Bartolo Colon, who had a nice one-hitter on Sunday, and, and Gazelman's not pitching well. All that other stuff is really going to work itself out somewhere or another 
for the most part. There's going to be a few things that you could pin on the manager. The Fordal thing is how are you going to find room for him? And the fact that they have to send him down because they talk about in 30 days that it may start hurting his development. I don't understand how being on a big league roster playing three days a week is going to hurt your development. I think that's a little overstated. But nonetheless, what's really going to be the, the proof of whether or not this team is going to get to the playoffs and, and, and succeed is his management of the bullpen, and he continues to show he doesn't know how to. He doesn't have a feel for the game, guys. He doesn't have a feel for the game. He never has. He didn't have it when this team was bad. He didn't have it when they went to the World Series. He cost them a World Series, and he doesn't have it now, and that's never going to change. Because if history is – and history is always an indicator of future performance, in my opinion. This is not one of these old small – this is not a small sample size. Year seven. And I'm sitting here talking about the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. And I know what you're going to say, well, it's easy, Mike. You're home. This isn't Stratomatic. You, can't, you don't know the guys how they're feeling. You got to prepare. You look at the lineup card. As I was watching that inning, my mind is rolling towards Yelich up, runner on, power, standing up. I mean, it's all rolling. And I'm not saying that's not happening with Collins, but he, and, and his, his rationale is odd. Well, he's been throwing up zeros. Well, if you looked at him with Rojas, he didn't look like he was ready to throw up zeros. And then the other thing is the pitch calling. That's a whole separate thing. I think the bench calls a lot of pitches. That was uh, Rivera in there. I, I, I'd have to find out. I'm not in the locker room enough. That's a question I would have. And the best part of all this and I know there's, you know, you keep hearing, and when Catino comes on in a couple of minutes, we'll talk about managers and press conferences, and maybe there's the on-camera persona for Terry, and then there's off-camera, but he went right into the, the tough guy act. Instead of just saying, yeah, you know, here's what we did, here's maybe what I could, I mean, I would have just taken accountability. I mean, I think if you really sit there and honestly think about this, if you're the manager, you got to say to yourself after that home run, I messed this one up. And guys, it's not changing. He's not going anywhere. I'm not calling for his head. I'm not demanding he gets fired. He's on the last year of his contract. You're going to live and die with him. But I'm going to tell you this, and I'm going to leave you with this thought before we go to Rich Catino. When the final book is written about this era of Mets baseball, it would be a damn shame if the reason this team didn't get a World's Championship is because the manager could not grasp basic bullpen management. He has the resources in that bullpen now. It's a little shaky with the Robles part of it, but any bullpen when you go to five and six is going to be shaky. You're going to have to push them another 50. Notice I haven't talked about the Grom and pushing the Grom. I'm going to let that go for a little bit. I'm going to let that organically get to the point where we're talking about a pitcher going another 10, 12, 15 pitches. If it's, if it's end of May, early June, we're still looking at this garbage. That'll be another conversation, which may include the, what, what, what's going on with the front office. Because if you can't go 115 pitches, there's a problem. And if you're going to get into the sixth inning all the time, you're going to blow games because those, that part of the bullpen is always going to be tricky. Even the seventh inning with Salas Blevins, it's not locked down. And Reed hasn't pitched great, but I think Reed, Familia, I feel like the probability, let's talk about the win probability, is going to be high if you have a lead going into the eighth inning. But 
basic bullpen management against a, an elite hitter, a hitter that did really well in the World Baseball Classic. Yes, he was struggling. Where you have a guy you're paying significant money to get left-handed hitters out, and it's proven that he can do it. The fact that he was left on the sidelines and then brought in after all the horses and cows and everybody ran out of the barn is just mind-boggling and unacceptable. And that's probably why. What you saw Saturday night, that's a synopsis of why this team may and probably will fail because the manager is going to be the reason for it. Let's take a quick break. When we return, Rich Catino, Press Box Revolution, ESPN 98.7, will be joining me. We'll talk a little bit about the media in this town and, uh, and have some fun with that. So you are listening to the Talking Pets podcast. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Check out the show all the time at uh, MetsmerizedOnline.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. And the show's on iTunes, SoundCloud, and whatever podcasting service you desire. We'll be back with Rich Catino right after this. Hey, Mets fans. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. If you're looking for the best unbiased and independent coverage of the New York Mets, then look no further than MetsmerizedOnline.com. Metsmerized Online is the go-to place for comprehensive Mets coverage, including exclusive interviews, daily original articles, great weekly features, in-depth analysis, minor league reports, game-by-game breakdowns, and so much more. Find out why thousands of fans turn to Metsmerized Online every day to get the latest news and opinions about the Mets. Coming from an impressive staff of the most passionate fans and skilled writers ever assembled all in one place. Check it out for yourselves, Mets fans. Go to MetsmerizedOnline.com right now. That's Mets, M-E-R-I-Z-E-D, online.com, and get Metsmerized today. We're back, Talking Mets podcast, and with us is a friend of the show, Rich Catino. You guys know him over on Twitter at uh, Catino9, Mets beat reporter, 98.7 ESPN. Uh, does a ton of work uh, for, obviously, various media outlets, and he just came out with a book, and that's what we're going to talk about tonight, Press Box Revolution, How Sports Reporting Has Changed Over the Past 30 Years. Had a chance to I had a chance to read it this weekend. Uh, on Kindle, and uh, if you haven't got yet, check it out. And uh, Rich, uh, Mike Silva here. Pleasure to have you on on this Monday night. How you doing? Really good. How you doing? Always good to be on the show with you, Mike. Appreciate you coming on. And and Rich, I guess I'll start here with this. I mean, obviously this book and what you talk about in this book is long overdue. Um, you know, there's a lot of interesting nuggets here for somebody like myself who's just dabbled in sports media, things I've learned uh, the hard way. Uh, uh, and I know there's a lot of young reporters as well as uh, veteran reporters that could read this and get a good feel uh, of the industry at where it is. But you, you kind of outline pretty much from the beginning of your career to now, and it spans a number of decades. And it's actually – what's interesting is that it spans the growth and in some cases the – I don't want to say decline, but the – the other side of the bell curve of what this uh, wild world of media is. It really has. And, you know, uh, when you have this many changes in an industry, it usually takes about 70, 80 years. But in the sports media journalism business, it took about maybe a good solid decade, and that was it. And I think what ended up happening was everything changed, the technology changed, but 
the world changed too, and I try to take people through that in the book, the changes in the world that affected the changes in the way sports is reported, and um, more changes are on the horizon, that's for sure. It's interesting because when I started you know, brokering time back in 2007, doing a radio show, and then got a blog and lost a blog, and I remember the big thing was sabermetrics. That was like the big topic, and now that's so passe, like and even if you look at the last four or five years, I mean, it's funny how you just said that. Um, it just changes so quickly. And, and the one thing, and, and you gave you give advice in this book, um, you really have to be versatile. And it was actually the best piece of advice. You And I'm not just telling this to you because you're in the show, Rich. You're the few people that really get it because I work full-time. This is not – I do this because this is a passion. I'd love to say I could do talk sports and Mets full-time. It doesn't pay the bills enough, and, and when you get laid off, you're in a bad spot, and um, you talk about that versatility here, and, and, and I think that's an important thing. I really do, and, and I think, you know, for me, ad sales was, was something I learned early in my career. Uh, somebody took me aside, an NBC mogul that, you know, made NBC Universal really today what it is. His name is Rick Basso. Look at wherever I went, and when the career kind of went down a little, that ad sales piece was always there to pick up the slack, and now it's a great consulting business side business for me as well. So I think that, you know, one of the things that you have to do is diversify. It's like an investment portfolio. I mean, if you put everything in one stock, you may end up being rich, but you also may end up getting nothing. And to diversify it gives you a better chance of at least having an above-average income and that's what I've tried to do in my career, and that's what I advise kids to do today. And I I really think young people have it much harder today than I had it 30 years ago. Um, there really was no sports talk radio when I started, but there seemed to be enough jobs for everyone. There were major radio networks, three of them that, you know, even before Fox came to the forefront, ABC, CBS, and NBC had radio networks that we got so much side work on, even when I was working at Sports Phone and when I was working even at, you know, even WFUV as a as a Fordham grad. So I think that that's the thing that made it a little easier on me. And I think one of the things I took people through in the book is I also did a lot of bartending when I got out of school. And in luck would have it, that helped get my first position uh, a weird night when I was bartending at an Irish bar in the city. And uh, there was also, a, and I don't want to give away too much on the book, but there's also a great interface I had with John Gotti one night serving drinks. So I won't say any more about stories, but I'll let people who buy the book read it. But those were uh, those were moments I'll never forget in my career, that's for sure. I have with me Rich Coutinho has a great book out, Press Box Revolution, and anybody who's in any part of this business, and, and that's the thing. I mean, media now encompasses so many corners. Uh, should really check it out. The one thing, and it's it's not Mets-related, and I know you're known for the Mets, but you know you and you talk about Rex Ryan in this book. You you talk about athletes in this book, so it's not just a Mets book. That's important for people to, to understand, although the Mets play a big part in it. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to go back, and, and I don't know if you agree with this, but I'm, I'm going – today I actually listened to the Phil Jackson – press conference, the audio from Friday, and I connected it to what was written uh, that same day. And I got to tell you, Rich, I don't know if you agree with this. I don't know if you've done that. You could not have had so many gaps in what was written. The narrative part of it, 
uh, almost – and you talk about this a lot with Rex Ryan and Bobby Valentine in the book. It almost like the, the – I don't, I don't know if there's agendas or people are trying to craft the story for entertainment purposes. Uh, it's actually – I don't know if it's the nature of the beast now, but what concerns me is I don't know if if you're not smart enough maybe to sift through a lot of this stuff. You could really, with all the options we have, with all the media we have, you almost could get bad reporting now, more bad reporting or erroneous reporting than ever before, if you could believe that when you only had a few outlets. I do believe that because, you know, I went through that with the Los Mets chapter, which I lived through that. And at the time I was, you know, you know, obviously starting my ESPN career back in 2001. And then I got the MedD about three years after I started doing a bunch of sports with them. And, there were times when I was sitting, standing in the Met clubhouse waiting to get in to speak to whether it be Willie Randolph or Omar Minai or any of the players, and I was embarrassed to be with the group. And I don't want to say everyone did this, that's an unfair statement, but just mimicking Spanish accents. And I, I, I thought I was in some, I thought I was in some romper room that was somehow stereotypical. And I always try to fight against that. Um, and takes you through early parts of my life when I, I dealt with some things that really opened my eyes into what racism and and stereotypes do and scarier than the out-and-out racism. And I saw it early in my career, and then I saw it 20 years after my career started for the way really Randolph was, was treated by the media for the most part. Um, and the Phil Jackson thing, I heard it, and this is what I would do with the Phil Jackson thing. I would record it, let it sit there, let people listen to it, and then make my comments later in the night when I've had a chance to listen to it and when I've had a chance to go through it. And not everyone's going to see it the same way, but my point on the whole thing is, and I think this is where radio reporters do a better job of it than print reporters, you always get the player's tone on the radio report that has the player speaking. In a newspaper article, you always get the writer's tone. And in the beginning of the industry, I think that was one of the things that really made radio reporters and TV reporters and print reporters on opposite sides of the room, and it was a contentious relationship, which it's quite ironic now when most of them have tried to enter our business, which um, is pretty funny when I think about it. But in those days, in the days of the 80s, and I, I, it's not only about covering the Mets. I saw the way Dave Winfield was covered. I saw the way Ricky Henderson was covered on the other side of town. I saw things like Magic Johnson being called the athlete and Larry Bird the smart player. And if you've ever been around Magic Johnson, I don't know if I've ever been around a smarter person. So I saw it. I saw the way Ewing was treated as a Georgetown player and then as a Knicks player. Um, and I wrote a lot about this in the book because I felt it had to come out, especially in the world we're living in right now, that has turned politically correct, and for the most part, we should be politically correct, but I think sometimes we're so politically correct that we're morally incorrect, and that's what that's one of the things I've tried to get out in this book and, and get out into the center of the universe, can see and hear and feel what goes on. Great point, and, and what's interesting is that you've got two dichotomies here. I've seen... And you talk in the book about how uh, the beat reporters becoming obsolete. And let me put it out there. Tough job, travel a lot, just like the athlete, don't get paid the money the athlete does. 
Um, you're tethered to your phone. I think Adam Rubin recently, uh, when he left the ESPN beat, talked a lot about and, and opened the door a little bit to his life. And, and, and let me tell you something. I think fans say, oh, that's a great job. Let me tell you, for the money I know that these guys get paid and, and the lack of a life you have, uh, it's not as great as what everybody thinks. But what really uh, stands out to me is that you've got two dichotomies. You have, I think, beats that clearly have agendas and try to, as you just said, uh, whether it be with the Mets, with Willie Randolph, or now with Phil Jackson, or Ewing, or whatever have, whatever you have, try to push the narrative. And it's very hard to break that if you're an athlete without, without winning a championship. Uh, and then you have the other extreme where I feel like it's, you know, and, and sometimes it's the groupthink part. And that's the thing that drives me crazy. I think there's a lot of groupthink where they'll just listen to the manager and everything they say is gold. And, and you sit back and you say, well, you know, is it almost like there's a meeting there where everybody gets together and says, okay, this is what we're going to do today? And I know that's not the case, but it's crazy, Rich, because you do have two stark dichotomies there, and it doesn't seem like anybody's balanced or, or, or really trying to be in between, I, except for the columnists. And you mentioned some of them in this book. The columnists maybe, but I talk specifically about the beat in this situation. Well, and I think you got to remember, too, and, and one famous columnist once said to me, sometimes when you're on a beat, you're too close to the situation. And that's why columnists sometimes get a better view of it. But my problem is when all the beat reporters act like sheep, and they all just follow each other. And, and, and I remember the young, my young days, and not only in the business, but growing up in New York, how competing opinions, 1977, and I talked a little bit about this in the book, because I talked about Dick Young in the book, and you had Dick Young on one side of the argument, you had Jack Lang on the other side of the argument, and it really was the first portent of sports talk radio we ever saw in the business. And it was continued on the next year when the whole Reggie Jackson and Billy Martin and George Steinbrenner thing surfaced, all within a probably 12 to 18 month period of the Seaver trade. So my point of the whole thing is that what happens now is we go in and see the manager in a press conference. And then we go to the players. And to me, it's politically correct drivel in a lot of ways because, you know, players are going to, players know that whatever they say is going to be on the post-game show. It's going to be on the SNY overnight show. It's going to be on Internet sites. It's going to be on talk radio. And it's going to be dissected and re-dissected and re-dissected. And I understand why that all happened. It happened because of revenue. All these shows bring in money. But, I think the funny thing about the whole thing is that it, it eliminated the um, the competing opinions that made sports analysis interesting. And I think sabermetrics played a part in it, too. When I hear a reporter say to me, you shouldn't do something because it's never been done before, my response to them is, you're just describing any, every innovative thing that ever occurred in the world. It was never tried before. And I think the same thing, and I talked about Bobby Valentine. He was the first first manager to have five infielders in a walk-off situation, and the two outfielders were in left center and right center. And everyone laughed at it, and everyone said, oh, this is, this is just over-managing. Now everyone does it. Now every single manager does it. And I think that when innovation comes, I think sometimes people in the media cast it aside because it's something they've never seen before. But we're seeing it now in, in baseball. The Mets and the Cubs have built good teams very differently. I don't. I think they're both effective ways. One built it through pitching and acquired hitting, more or less. One built it through establishing hitting and developing it and acquiring pitching. To me, it doesn't matter 
it can be done both ways, but you have to have the correct personnel that you put in those situations. And I think Leo Epstein said it best going into the postseason last year. He said, I'm, I wasn't nervous in the regular season at all because it's 162 games and the green rises to the top. But I'm nervous as all heck in the postseason because it's a short season. And that's kind of also, Mike, what makes sports great, that dichotomy. But a lot of beat reporters, I think, I have to be honest about this one, I think they hate their jobs. I think they've gotten to the point where they hate it. And I don't have that in me. And listen, we all have bad days. We all have days where we're tired on our personal life, kind of spills over and what we're doing and all that stuff. But when I take my car and drive into that press light at City Field or, or drive into the garage at Madison Square Garden or MetLife Stadium, I'm a kid again. And I'm 56 years old, and I think this has kept me young. And I think the part of it is the passion is missing. And I think the... I think there's a lot of people who've entered this business that in their late teens and early 20s, they said, well, I think this might be a good business to go into. But there's people like you and me and tons of others, not just you and me, you know, Howie Roses of the world, the Kevin Burkharts of the world, the Eddie Coleman's of the world, the Susan Walden's of the world, who, when they were six or seven years old, this lit up their soul. And I think that has given me the staying power And I think, even more importantly, the people I just mentioned, it's giving them the staying power. And the ones that don't have it are the ones that don't have the passion. And you can be a great writer. You can be objective. You can always be on time. You can have the inside story with players, but be alive. And I do see some of that in the industry right now. With me, Rich Coutinho, Press Box Revolution is uh, the book. Uh, You know, I grew up as a young guy, uh, in, in the media uh, world that you described about when you were getting into the business, I remember the fan at the beginning. Um, you know, I, I I talk to guys now like Bob Clappish and Kevin Kernan and guys that uh, covered the Mets in the late '80s, Yankees late '80s, early '90s, and and I think you made the point. You know, obviously I understand that Terry Collins has to have a press conference before and after, and they want to televise it. Uh, whether whether it's filler or there's actual ratings, that's a debate. That that's really not the point here. But I, I have to think, Rich, and you lived it, that having those conversations in the manager's um, locker room after the game, think about late 80s, early 90s, were, created so much more valuable reporting for a beat writer than what they're able to do today. Because, sure, I've done it. I've stood in the locker room uh, freelancing and waited for players to come out, and you get some stuff. And I'm saying to myself, uh, and, and Ruben talked about this recently in a thing he, he wrote. This is kind of a lot of it is a waste of time. I know your editors want it. I know that you know there's a responsibility to your employer. Um, but I think about what you probably were able to do back 25, 30 years ago and have those extemporaneous conversations. For, sure, getting thrown stuff off the record that you can use in some way, you can't do that anymore. So you almost can't do your job. So I understand them hating their jobs, um, but you know this is the nature of the beast. There's still ways around it, I think. There's still ways to get good reporting if your employer lets you. The question is, is your employer going to let you do what you need to do to get to where you want to get when it comes to your work? I've been very fortunate. I've always had employers that have allowed that. And I go back to those days, and not just Bobby Valentine. When I was in the manager's office with Dallas Green, Buck Showalter, um, even in other... And with, you know, you know, 
Jeff Van Gundy, or even Pat Riley. And and it was the aftertime when you're talking about other things. And there's one man, Terry Collins is the only one that does it in today's world. He will walk with you when he's done with his presser, and he'll talk to you about some things he say you didn't want to ask in the big scrum of people in a press conference setting. And Terry doesn't do it with just certain people. He, if you have a question and you want to walk with him, and he's an older guy, but he walks really fast, so you got to walk fast. But I almost feel like it's almost an extension of what it used to be with the manager's office. And I think it's because Terry comes from an old school, long-time baseball lifer and understood it. The other thing is he does talk in the dugout a lot to us, just about things like his time in Japan and what that meant to him and, and, and stuff like that. And Bobby did that a lot too, Bobby G. Um, and I think we miss that. And I, But I think part of it is that the managers know that everything they say is going to be dissected. I think Terry Collins is one of those managers who doesn't care if it's dissected. He, he will say what's on his mind, and he will have a filter when he needs to. But guys like Joe Girardi, you can't have a conversation with him unless he's in, in, on a podium in a microphone or, or sometimes on the road if he does it in his office, if yes wants to do it that way. And I like Joe Girardi personally. I think he's a great person, an awesome person. But he can't really get to the teeth of what he's thinking in his mind because he doesn't open up, whereas Terry does open up. And to a certain extent, Willie Randolph didn't do that in the beginning, and then with me anyway started doing it. And I think it just makes you more real. And I think the other thing it does as a manager, when there's a gray area thing that could go one way or the other, you tend to give the manager the benefit of the doubt when you know what his decision-making is on other things in his life. And I know that sounds weird and contrived, but I'll give you an example. When he didn't bunt Cliff Floyd, Willie Randolph, in Game 7, I felt I would have bunt. But I felt it was one of those gray area decisions that you could defend either way. I don't know if I would have felt that way if Willie hadn't opened up as much as he did to me, even going back to the spring training in 2005. So I think that does help you in your reporting to kind of understand. doesn't mean you can't criticize decisions, but you understand the decision-making policy in these situations, and it makes you better. Like with Jeff Van Gundy, I always knew he was a believer, and he beloved the isolation offense. And the sport had become more like that, but sometimes when he would be asked questions, well, why didn't you double-team this? And he would say, well, I know what an isolation offense can do to a double-team, and I didn't want to do that defensively because I know that I wish when I run an offense that they double-team me when I'm in an isolation. And part of it, too, and I put this in the book, people don't, and I don't know if it's people or reporters or a little of both, they don't care about the intricacies of the game. You know, when I hear that they want to curb extra innings because they want to start by putting a runner on second base after a certain inning, I mean, my head explodes. Yeah. This is baseball. This is what it was meant to be. I remember things from my childhood, like staying up for the 24-inning, one-nothing Astros win over the Mets in 1968, where Tommy Agee started the game with a 313 batting average and ended up with a bad season. He ended up with a 167 batting average and ended up having his bad year in 68 before, of course, he had the great one in 69. I remember the 1974 game where the Mets went 25 innings and Jake McBride running on the pitch scored on a single and they lost the 25-inning game. I'm not old enough to remember the doubleheader against the Giants, but there's great stories out of that game. 
It was the second game of doubleheader, 23 innings, and it was the game where Gaylord Perry admitted he first started throwing the, the spitball. Okay? Now, I only bring this up that, and my point on the whole thing is, that's part of the allure of baseball. It's part of what baseball is about. I don't mind changing minor things in the game. I don't, I'm not, I don't even care about the intentional walk thing. It's fine. Okay? But when you start screwing around with the core of the game, where you're going to now have like a college football overtime when baseball goes to extra innings, what a runner starting a scoring position, my head explodes. And, 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 and maybe that's my age and my impatience. But, um, and I think it's because people, in, I think the media loves it because the media says, well, why, then I won't have to stay for a four and a half hour game. Well, you know what? That's your job to stay for a four-and-a-half-hour game. That's what you signed up for, okay? You're going to have two-hour, ten-minute games. You're going to have two-hour, 40-minute games. You're going to have long games. And I think sometimes we live in a now society, and part of it is a credit card society, and we all know that, but I think it has made us all forget the greatness of the game of baseball is the intricacy and the analysis, and not who's friends with who, not who does what off the field, none of that stuff. It's between the white lines and then analyzing it and talking to players while you hit and run, why you threw a 2-0 changeup and how it got you out of the inning. I find that stuff real interesting. A lot of people don't. I'll give you another story, Mike. I was in spring training this year, and I spent 45 minutes sitting with Dan Worthen, who was showing me how he teaches the changeup, the things that he does, and I said, God, this would be a great piece to write. And then I said to myself, no one's going to be interested in this because it's the intricacy of the game. I yearn for the time when there was a love of sports for the analytics of the game and not sabermetric of baseball that we see every night, which intellectually can make you smarter by thinking about it. I miss those days, Mike. I really do. You make a great point. I got to tell you, you know, and I've been fortunate. I was friendly. Uh, he's retired now with a former big league pitcher, and I learned a lot. And I've been friendly with agents. And this is these are guys who are, are boutique guys. We're not talking about big time guys. And I've always tried to pride myself on, you know, I went down to Trenton a lot and and minor league stadiums and tried to talk to people. And I think here's what I would say, Rich, to to your point about that story about Worthen. I think there is an audience for that. I think it's not a standalone thing. But I think that's why – I mean, look, I don't have any money here. I have no big corporate sponsor. I get a decent audience uh, who wants to listen, listens, who doesn't, doesn't. But the fact that somebody does spend their time, and there's nothing more valuable than another person's time, to hear my take says, okay, that guy makes sense. And I think the intricacies is if I'm an editor, if I'm running a, a, a sports department, I expect my beat writer or anyone covering my sport to kind of learn some of that. You almost have to pretend to be a GM learn that job in the sense where, okay, what are, what are you, they looking at so that you can report? If you're just going to show up, put quotes out there, uh, take audio, I mean, Rich, all due respect, I could get a college kid to do that who knows nothing. I could get anybody who, who, who could just hand, uh, hold a recorder. Uh, you know, it goes back to what I was saying. I know it's not Mets-related. This is a Mets show, but it's topical. You know, how many of those who cover the Knicks really understand the triangle offense when they make fun of it? Really, think about it, Rich. How many really could could sit down and say I could spot the truck? I, I don't. I can't because I haven't done the intricacies. I'm not covering the NBA. But how mm-hmm. many? And think about 25 years ago, if you were covering the Knicks and criticizing them as they do now, right, wrong, or different, 
and not knowing what you're criticizing. Is that acceptable? And I think that's what you're seeing a lot. And as I'm reading your book, I'm saying to myself, you know, you're not going to have uh, an audience. This kind of behavior continues because the smart fans who are spending time, even if they're niche, doing what you just talked about, learning the intricacies of a game, they're going to turn you off because I'm doing that, and I'm a viewer, and they're to get less clicks from me. Um, and then everyone's sitting around going, well, how do we fix this? Well, I think it was about a 35- to 45-second answer I just gave you, but nobody seems to want to do that, I guess. And it's true, and, and, and I think it's no better illustrated than how a team is covered that loses the championship game. And not just the Mets in 2015. It happened in the Super Bowl with the Panthers. And I hear this stuff, well, the Panthers were exposed. Uh, and I'm like, they were in the Super Bowl. They lost one game all year. They, they got to the Super Bowl on that day. The better team won, no question. But don't tell me they were exposed. Talk about the teams that didn't get to the Super Bowl and how they were exposed, or didn't even get to the playoffs. Same thing with the Mets. And give the Royals all the props in the world. They came back to the World Series after losing it and won it. All credit goes to them. The, the, the correct team won, the team that played better. But don't tell me the Mets were exposed. Not when the Mets had a four-game period where they beat guys like Arietta, Greinke, Kershaw, and Lester. I, don't tell me that they were exposed, because if those four pitchers couldn't expose them, nobody could. I think the Mets did make some plays. I think the Mets made some mistakes. I think the Worlds took advantage of those mistakes, and that's what championships teams do. But it doesn't minimize what the Mets did. I love that college basketball celebrates the Final Four. I think it's great that they celebrate the Final Four. They, they don't play any games in that for a five-day period. And they celebrate the Final Four. And when you think about it this year, a team like South Carolina gets to celebrate the fact they're in the Final Four, a, quote, college football school that showed they could be. And I love that. And I, to me, I evaluate teams on the Final Fours they get to. And that's why when people tell me the mid-'80s Mets were disappointing, I say that's a bunch of hogwash. They won a championship, and that's, and two years after, they won 100 games and got to the Final Four. And in the present-day playoff format, who knows what they would have done or what they wouldn't have done, but there would have been more opportunity for them. And my point is, I can't just say, and I'll give you an example, I can't just say that Derek Jeter has all these rings and say a player like, you know, I don't know, think of, a, think of a great player in the past. Say, a player like Mike Piazza doesn't have rings. It doesn't mean Jeter's better than Piazza. It doesn't mean Piazza's better than Jeter. But the guy who has the rings was on a team that had talent around him, okay? And the guy who doesn't have the rings maybe didn't have as much talent around him. I think it's a tremendous accomplishment that the 99 and 2000 Mets made it to the Final Four and in the second of, of those years made it to the World Series. And I think the world doesn't look at it that way. It's championship or bust. And I'll go even further than that. The Mid-80s Mets have a championship, and they're still talked about how disappointing the Mid-80s Mets were. And I'm saying to myself, that's like saying the 94 Rangers were disappointed. Or that's like saying the Super Bowl Jets were disappointing. Okay? You can't say that 
that rings mean everything to you and then take a Met championship in 86 and deprecate it because they only got one. And I think it's all part of the me-first mentality in the world. And I think it's distressing. And I've tried to address it in my book in that mid in that 86 Mets chapter, things wrong, Mike, off the field. And, but, in the 80s. And I can tell you as a bartender, I had a first-hand look at it, all of it, okay? And now, these guys had a lot of money, and I'm not excusing what they did, because we all have the ability to make the right decisions in our life, and I'll just say Gary Carter made all the right decisions when it came to that. But, it's a it's a situation where people look at it and say it's like it's like drugs issue. They said, well, the Mets have twenty. In those days, you had twenty four guys in the roster, but you have twenty four guys on the roster, and let's say eight of them took drugs. Well, I got news for you. That's the way it was in society. Thirty three percent, and I think that's a low figure. I think forty percent is more of a, an appropriate figure. And I know, and I had friends that took drugs, and I had friends that had drug problems. And to me, the baseball locker rooms reflected those percentages. They didn't scale them up. And for some reason, we always think that athletes are in this bubble and not part of society. And the percentages of things that occur in society are going to be the same in the percentages of of clubhouses. And maybe they're going to be a little more because they have more money, and money can get you into more trouble, too. But I think that the 86 Mets started the change in reporting, that we had to start to look at private lives. And I'll give you the best example, Dwight Good. Okay? He misses the parade. We all know that. But people are contending, well, he's probably having drug problems during the World Series. What does that mean, that he didn't have drug problems during the NLCS when he pitched, like, 17 innings and gave up two runs? I think what people have to remember is that nobody really knew what was going on in Doc's life. And we all looked aside, myself included. But my point in the whole thing is I was in businesses where I saw that happen with vice presidents, with CEOs, where drug problems exist and they went into rehab and some did well in rehab and some did not so well in Opposed to it, and I'll never forget this, they said, well, he'll go to this 28-day program and come out. I think the person that was most unfair to that was Dwight Good. You cannot have a problem like that and tell me you can correct it in 28 days when the guy has a job where he has to be right back where he was. And it was unfair to Doc. It was fair to everyone else. It was fair to the fans. It was fair to the Mets. It was fair to the organization. But it wasn't fair to Dwight Gooden, and it wasn't the best way he could get rehabilitated. And um, that's why I think that, that was wrong to just say, let's get him the 28-day program and get him in and out. And I think it may have made the situation worse than making it even a little better. And you know, Rich, you make a great point, and you're right. Uh, the the you know Pat Riley used to say, winning or misery, and I understand that to a large degree. But in 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 the terms of the media, uh, it's either you've won the championship or you're a loser, and and everybody wants to torch the loser. And, and when it really in this town, I think changed. And I've always made this joke, and people get mad. I call it the Yankeeization of this town. Is when the Yankees, and you talk about the media taking sides during the Subway Series and that era with Torrey on one side and Bobby V on the other. Uh, when they won those four championships in, in five years, 
and it got to the point where you know you would hear you know the Yankees are going to you know sign this free agent. George Steinbrenner is ordering his people. They have these secret meetings at a steakhouse, and I remember saying, I mean, "What are they a mob?" I mean, you know, it's it, it was ridiculous, and it really at that point, and a lot of it had to do with what the Yankees were doing. If you didn't have you had that gold winning championship, and if and if you didn't win that championship, you were a failure, and it trickled down to the other teams in the city. And it's really never gone away. Now you can blame the Yankees; they just, you know, they were the, the the spark plug of it. But it's unfortunate where not that you're celebrating losing a championship, but perspective. That's what I think it is, Rich. Perspective, because I don't think people realize, even those covering these teams, how hard it is to win. The probability of winning. You got 30 teams in baseball; only one could win. And go look at all these other franchises, and tell me. How many of them would like to have the history of the Mets over the last 25 years versus their history? Look at the Pirates. I, I the agree, Pirates I, like to I agree the Mets? totally. And I even think the Pirates the same the would like to be the Mets. You know, think about that. And and the Jets. Take a look at the Jets. Now I know the Jets haven't been in the Super Bowl since '69, but when you look at the period of Bill Parcells and Herman Edwards and Rex Ryan, and take that in a compartment, okay. And I got to look at it to make sure I have the numbers right. But I would say in a 10, 15 year period, the Jets are in the playoffs six or seven times. Now, that's not a Pittsburgh Steelers number or a New England Patriot number. But I'll tell you right now, Cleveland Brown fans will switch with them. Cincinnati Bengal fans will switch with them. Um, even the Kansas City Chief fans will switch with them. Okay? And then to have a coach who takes you to two straight championship games by never playing a home playoff game and constructs two defensive game plans, and I wrote about this in the book, where he constructs a game plan to beat Peyton Manning, which is a bend but don't break, but when you get inside the 20, stop him and hold him a field goal. Okay? And the following week, a totally different defensive game plan with Tom Brady, where they put pressure up the middle, which is the only way to beat Tom Brady. If you put pressure on the side, he's going to step up in the pocket and run, and he'll be able to see and have vision. But when he had in his face, as the Giants proved, you can beat him. Now, you can talk to me all about who New England's beaten and, and, and Rex didn't do this and Rex didn't do that. Rex beat Tom Brady in Foxborough in a playoff game. That is in the history books. It wasn't in a neutral site. It was in Foxborough. And it was the week after he beat Peyton Manning in Indianapolis. Aside from what the Ravens doing it one year, I've never seen that. Guy gets no credit for it at all. And throw in the mix that in successive years at the end of his career, Rex beat the Dolphins in a playoff and a win they were winning it in, and then he did it to the Jets the following year as the Bills coach. And I look at all these things and I say to myself, This guy was a brilliant coach. People didn't like his persona. They they connected it with his father's persona. And I talk about that in the book on how that was so ridiculous. And I feel privileged to have covered the careers of Rex Ryan and Bobby Valentine. And I would say that if I went to 10 media members and asked them that, they would nine of them would not agree with me. Okay? I might get one out of 10 to say they like one of them. But to find someone that said they – and I learned about football under Rex. And I learned about baseball under Bobby Valentine. And that's the other thing. Reporters have two modes of communication, like talking and waiting to talk. There's no listening module. And I love listening because I've learned a lot. 
I've learned from going up to ESPN meetings and talking to John Groot on why certain things occur. I talked about that in the book a little bit too. And it's it's today's society when they have a preconceived notion on someone, they can't get it out of their minds. And that's what I've always tried not to do and follow the sheep, okay? And not always take the opposite viewpoint because sometimes I did agree with what the core media people had thought about somebody. But for my own opinion, I'm a smart enough person to have my own opinion, and I always remember what Howard Cosell taught me when I was at ABC Radio. What is right is not always popular, and what is popular yep. is not always right. No, that was no truer words have been said. I agree thousand percent with that. A couple of things, Rich, before we wrap up. Um, you know, you talk about WFUV, the Fordham Station and Sports Phone, and I've heard stories from Don LaGreca and uh, you know, so many people who are, who have graduated from that. Joe Bono, a friend of mine, you know, went to Fordham and you know has talked about his experience. And there's really no farm system anymore, and it's a thing that I've criticized about. Now you have shows like this that people want to use the whole internet, social media to recruit the next thing. But I think that the the major sports radio and papers they're very they're rather unimaginative. Uh, with how they go out and look at talent, and then just plugging people in, and and it's a shame because I don't know if you're gonna you don't have a sports phone anymore. So where's the farm system gonna be going forward? And do the people in charge have the mindset of who is my farm system? Do I need a farm system? I'm not sure that they really they really get that or care to get that. I agree, and I think the the people that do the guy that does the best at it is Eric Spitz of the Fan. He has an internship program, and it's had success. It's had some people that, you know, you wanted to score out of the place the first night they were there. But talk about some of the interns that have been there. Not only the ones that are well-known, Ian Eagle was an intern, Bob Wischusen was an intern. Um, you know, those are the those are the famous ones. But guys like Shorshak Cena, who have been in the business a long time, um, you know, all came in as interns. Erica Herskowitz came in as an intern. Um you know, Evan Roberts, we all know his story, you know, appearing on the Ivan show as a youngster and then working his way back up. So I think Eric does a good job of that. And I think the problem with a lot of companies when they bring interns in is they, they say to the intern, okay, make copies for me, do this, do that. And I don't like doing that. When I've had interns, I like teaching them the core part of the business so that they leave at least not just having something on the resume that they were at ESPN or they were at Verizon Files 1, but that they learn something, whether it's video editing, whether it's audio editing, whether it's podcasting, whether it's the difference between writing on a website versus a newspaper, whether it's making them a closed caption and improve their play by I want them to leave having something they didn't have when they started with me. And I think in our business, unfortunately, there are a lot of people that are a little leery of interns because the intern comes in and the person might say, oh, if I teach this guy everything, then... You know what's going to end up happening? They're going to take. He's going to take my job because he could be so much cheaper than what I make. And there are people that really think that. You have to have confidence in your own ability to earn a living and not be someone who's going to be worried that an intern. Because when I was a youngster, people like Howard Cosell, Chip Cipolla, um, you know, helped me. Helped me through. Fred Manfra helped me become better. Um and they weren't afraid I was going to take their job. Now, we lived in a different setting back then, but to me, conceptually, it's the same. And I think the thing that sometimes people don't realize in this business is 
the same people you see on your way up in the business, you're going to see on your way down in the other direction. I joke around with Ryan Rucco all the time. I say to him, Ryan, you're so good in this business that we're all going to be working for you someday. And if it's not far from the truth, my point is that be kind and considerate to the people you meet on the way up, okay? Because you're going to meet them when you're on the backside of your career. And a 20-year-old that was your intern is now the program director at a radio station which you're working at. And you want to have a good relationship with them. So don't ever think you're better than anyone. Don't ever, you know, say things to people that make them really feel bad about what they did. When an intern always asks me, what's my weakness? I said, that's the first mistake you made. It's not a weakness. It's an area of development. I don't like the term weakness. I never liked it, and I don't use it. Because I don't think that we're not doctors here. You know, we do something wrong, someone doesn't die. We get a chance to, if you were popping your keys when you spoke or you weren't editing right, you weren't, you know, dubbing something right, the closed captioning is all off, we got a chance to do it tomorrow, but let's talk about how you did it and let's try to get you to believe that you can do it. One of the things I've always felt as a manager in this business is I have to create an environment where people are not only not afraid to come and talk to me, will put a mirror up to my face when I'm managing in the wrong way. And you have to develop an environment where even if the, the person you work for said it incorrectly, you have to create an environment where your door is open to hear it. And I think so many bosses don't do that. I talked about Shelby Whitfield in the book at ABC Radio. And there's some stories about Shelby I just can't even put in the book because they're so crazy and outlandish. But my point is, one thing I learned from Shelby, two things I learned from Shelby, how to create revenue out of nothing, which he did better than anybody, and secondly, how not to manage people. And it wasn't his fault. He was brought up in a different world. But I knew that wasn't the world I wanted, and I knew that wasn't the world how I wanted to manage people. And I took it into my sportscasting craft as well, understanding that it's my responsibility to get to know the player's culture, not the reverse. And I brought that into the Los Mets, And it helped me tremendously, and it made me a better person. I learned more about Hispanic culture than I ever knew before because players like Pedro Martinez and Carlos Delgado and Carlos Beltran and Jose Reyes took the time to explain it to me because I gave them the idea I was real interested in because I was. And I think it's a lesson to us in this community and society we're in now where everyone's taking a political stance on the opposite of each other, and it's the Jets and the Sharks in West Side Story. And that's not what being an American is. And to a certain extent, I hope that theme came through in the book, too, that we only need to get along better because we can learn from each other. Last thing, Rich, before we wrap up, uh, with CBS Sports Radio Network and and ESPN New York kind of getting away from local content, you get the sense that what you knew about the fan and local radio, local content, is disappearing. Now, you still have blogs. You still have independent media guys like you who are doing stuff, you know, for ESPN and, and jumping in. But that hub that you used to have with WFAN back in the heyday, I almost feel like it's disappearing. Do you agree? And, and why do you think, if you do, that the local component is going away and it just seems to be becoming, you know, sanitized across the board, no matter what network you're talking about? To a certain extent, I agree with it. But I do think WFAN still does a very good job of, keeping things local. 
the CBS radio network is out there. And who knows what Intercom are owning the company now, where it's going to go. I know a lot of the top-level people in Intercom well. I have a lot of respect for them. Uh, I would think the one thing they will do is they'll bring more revenue into the company than CBS did into WFAN. That I can assure you of because they are ad sales dynamos in the intercom. So that will occur. But in terms of the localness or non-localness, I think ESPN has a tough on 98.7 because Bristol runs the show. They've always kind of dipped their toe in the local market, and they've never dove into the pool. They didn't even do it, as I said in the book, when in an 18-month period the fan lost Don Imus and Chris Russo. And if it never changed then, I don't think it's ever going to change. I do think the Michael K. show is a very good show. I think it's in any other market it would have beat the people down the dial, but Mike Francesa happened to be that person. The one out of 100 they couldn't beat. So with Mike leaving, I think you might see ESPN put more money in the local programming and really try to make a run for that afternoon drive ratings bonanza that I think Kay and LeGreca could bring. Um, I do think that ESPN, in terms of their website, the New York web, poor management that did it. It wasn't the writers. The writers all worked hard. They're all very good writers. Um, I was there from the beginning, and it was, I could see it coming from a mile away that it wasn't going to work. And not because it wasn't being written well, it wasn't being marketed well, and it wasn't being given the opportunity to grow. And I talk about that in the book, how TV networks grow and how the Internet sites don't take that mentality of charging for something, building an income that way, and giving ad sales a chance and your programming a chance to ferment before ad sales takes the ball and runs to the goal line with it. And I think ESPNNewYork.com was a prime example of a botched management um, decision-making process. And I'll just give you a simple one. If the guy running it came from the Daily News. And of all the people he brought over, didn't bring over Frank Isola, then he probably needed to have his head examined. Because it was a year which all the free agents were coming in the NBA, and Frank Isola had the inside. Frank Isola is the best basketball writer with the exception of Vesey that I've ever been around. And I've been around with him throughout all the Nick years. And my point on the whole thing is, how do you come from the Daily News and not bring the best person? I'm not saying don't bring Adam Rubin. I'm not saying, you know, don't bring, you know, Rich Semini. They're terrific writers. But I'm saying, how can you possibly leave the LeBron James back at your old place and not bring him over? And I'll tell you how it happened. He ran out of money. And, and he didn't understand ad sales. And there's a lot of things that he didn't do. And I think it brought around the demise of a website which should not have been a demise. And I'll leave you with this, Mike. The really bad thing about the newspaper industry and the Internet, the Internet could have saved them. But they just didn't have the right people in charge. Said very well. Rich, uh, the book is obviously – I got it on Kindle, so – uh, Amazon, you can get it there. Uh, bookstores, I'm sure it's there. What What do you want the listeners to know about the book appearances you got coming up over the the next couple of weeks? Anything you want them to know about Pressbox Revolution, which is a good read, an informative read. It's an easy read too, Rich. You make it go really quick. And I'll tell you what, I'll throw this one in there. If you want to skip around and look at a chapter that interests you more than another, you could do that too. Because I jumped around a little bit because I was interested to see 
you know, about the Subway series and things like that. So it, you could take and digest this many, many different ways. It's almost like a, a collection of stories within a book, if, if, if I may, if I may call it that. Yeah, and, and it was that was intentional to do it that way. As you said, it's available on BarnesandNoble.com, Amazon.com, TargetStores.com. It is officially in the stores tomorrow in all the bookstores. Uh, and I will have some signing events, the first of which is going to be at Foley's Pub in New York City in Manhattan on Monday night, May 22nd. And that will be between 5 and 7 p.m. And then we're going to do a night in McFadden's right by City Field. That's going to be on May 31st prior to the Met Brewers game. And that will also be from 5 to 7. There's going to be one up here in Westchester County, too, at a place called John's of Arthur Avenue, which is a kind of cool Italian restaurant that has a sports bar in it. And that's going to be a smaller place, you know, more for people that live up here. There might be a couple of Barnes & Nobles, and uh, there might be one we're doing in the Greenwich Barnes & Noble bookstore. I haven't yet firmed that up. Um, but I want to tell people that buy the book, and I want your honest opinions on the book, and, you know, put them on Amazon.com and where you could put reviews and everything. And if anyone out there, including you, this is directed to you too, Mike, if anyone thinks they always wanted to write a book and do it, pushers, give them your ideas, and I'm telling you, it's it, you learn a lot about yourself, and we're already talking about a second or third book, and I want to relax for a while, Mike, because it's been part of my life for the last 14 months, but um, if you have any thoughts on whether you should write a book or not, write one. It will give you a great sense of accomplishment, whether it makes money or whether it doesn't. We all want to make money. We know that. But it is on my bucket list, something I've crossed off, and um, I love the fact that I did it. And Skyhorse giving me public, uh, publishing, giving me the opportunity to do it, I will always be indebted to them for that. And uh, I, I advise anyone who's thinking of doing it to do it. That's great advice. Rich, you always are a good friend of the show. I definitely want to catch up with you offline at, at one of your events. We'll talk more and and be well. And obviously, we're in the you know the baseball season's just revving up, and uh, I'm sure you and I will catch up, talk more Mets, and and obviously keep promoting the press box revolution. So be well, my friend, and let's talk again. You know, at any time, and I want your listeners to know too what a good job you do in covering this team, and you have baseball in your soul and your objective. We don't always agree, and that's cool because. I sometimes have learned from you in not agreeing with you. So I think it's a, a good relationship that you have with the fans, and it's one that um, I think the fans are lucky to have. So keep up the great work. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Have a great night, Rich. We will talk again. Me too. Rich Catino at Catino9 on Twitter. Spent a lot of time talking. I thought it was interesting just getting his perspective. And like I said about the book, and I know we didn't really do a lot of Mets tonight, but I thought this was something interesting on a night off. and. Obviously, like I said earlier, with the Easter holiday, I decided to push the show to today. That was just a perfect day. I could sit here and, like I did in the open rant about Terry Collins managing for 45 minutes, but you know about that. So get a take on the media and Rich's thoughts, and definitely check out Press Box Revolution. Just go on Kindle if you can. I mean, not that I don't want you to support a local bookstore or buy the book physically, but it's really an easy read, and you can just jump chapter to chapter. It's uh, it's quite amazing, you know, the Kindle app on uh, my iPad, how easy it was to go through this. So anyway, uh, good stuff. Uh, always enjoy talking to Rich, and uh, appreciate you guys tuning in on this Monday night. Of course, you can check out the show all the time at MetsmerizedOnline.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you can download the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, 
Blog Talk Radio, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. I'm your host, Mike Silva. We'll be back regular time on Sunday. Be well. Check out Press Box Revolution, and I'll see you next week. Me.